0: How much longer shall we allow generation after generation to be taught crime from their infancy? And when so taught, hunt them like beasts in the forest until they are entangled beyond escape in the toils and nets of the law. That was Robert Owen, our guest for today on Speaking to the Dead, the podcast where we have but one rule, the author must be dead. I'm your co-host, Doug Rooney,
1: joined as always by my other host, <laughs> by the other go. I, I, I think of myself as the host and you the parasite, Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I was saying, I am joined by uh, Will Stafford. Say hello, Will. Hi, and um, Robert Owen. Now there's a uh, controversial figure.
0: Yes, well, so today we're going to be talking about Robert Owen, who is a yeah controversial figure to people who remember him. But I think the vast majority of people have, unfortunately, entirely forgotten about Robert Owen. In fact, I would say the only place on earth who's really particularly invested in selling Robert Owen's legacy is a little UNESCO World Heritage Site in Scotland called New Lanark, which is his mill, and it's one of the best preserved uh, cotton mills in all of the UK. And as my father is a big fan of New Lanark, He takes all of my friends when they visit to New Lanark. So you have been there, Will, right?
1: Yeah, um, I've been to uh,
0: New Lanark. So as someone who has been to New Lanark, what is your impression of the kind of idea that this site is trying to send out about Robert Owen?
1: I quite like there's a story about New Lanark, which is someone's going around and they're showing uh, the workers' benches and these little triangles uh, or these little squares above them that get turned to say how productive the worker is being and and according to the story the person says well isn't he treating the workers like children and the person showing them around responds well most of them were children
0: yeah and i think this is actually a pretty good and a pretty good illustration of how robert owen is kind of remembered today um, at least at places that are invested in selling his legacy, which is as kind of a bit of an ethical capitalist, which is like he's running a factory, but he's trying to invest some humanity in his workers, right. right? So this story is, is generating this idea that he's treating his child, treating these people like children rather than like full adults, as would be taking place in other, in other factories.
1: And I'm right to say that he's kind of part, well, at least in my perception, he's part of a generation that involves, say, uh, the Roundtree Brothers and um, uh, quite a few Quaker businesses in the UK where there would be worker villages, there would be this sense that some kind of care should be taken of workers, including into old age. But at the same time, there's... um, you know you're not allowed to drink you're not allowed to gamble there's this kind of moral control yeah
0: exactly and i and actually when you look him up online britannica encyclopedia will label him as a philanthropist exactly that is part of this larger broader list of what were called at the time do-gooders factory owners rich men of business who were trying to do good in society but actually at the time Robert Owen and his followers did not perceive themselves in that way. They perceived themselves as utopian
1: socialists. Okay, so that's interesting because having a a factory full of kids working for you doesn't sound very uh, socialist. Sure, well, so this is the interesting thing about utopian socialism, because
0: it is a type of socialism that pre-exists Marx. What that means is, if I have to simplify it, it is one that believes in gradual change toward their goal of utopia. So they do not believe in this idea of, um, of changing everything overnight. They want to make small changes where they can, leading up to this goal, this ultimate goal of achieving socialist utopia. And This is mixed into this factory, right? The idea that you're still employing children, but you're making their lives a little better. And in a few years, you might make their lives a little better again. And the idea is for Owen to eventually get rid of child labor altogether, but he doesn't want to change everything overnight. He wants to gradually work toward it. And these people are very, very heavily influenced by the scientific revolution and the enlightenment. That is to say that they believe everyone is a rational actor, who can be convinced to maximise societal good. So if you just change everyone's circumstances and teach them correctly, you can kind of convince them to come along with you to build this utopia.
1: It sounds a bit like um, the utilitarian movement. Yes,
0: it is a part like the utilitarian movement, but I suppose the difference is their views are much, much more utopian. And while they're not necessarily anti-establishmentarian, they are definitely not as enmeshed within the the establishment is utilitarian. So we think of Jeremy Bentham, the fo- one of the founders of utilitarianism. He's designing prisons for the state, right? That's one of the things he's doing. But these utopian socialists are kind of involved in things like the nascent trade union movement, the cooperative movement, the left wing of the establishment, liberal party, trying to push them left to kind of get on the road to where they see socialism going.
1: And uh, so you say it's a gradual change. Sounds like a very British attitude to social change?
0: Well, this is the thing. I think the utopian socialism from the mid-19th century onward is kind of, in most of the rest of the world, supplanted by things like Marxism and anarchism. Except in the UK, where it kind of lives on, in this, as you say, kind of gradualist mainstream trade union movement, mainstream Liberal Party, the Fabian Society, things like the Roundtree Trust and things like that. And from there, kind of goes on to to influence things like the modern Labour Party. So what's Robert Owen's
1: contribution to all this?
0: Well, before I get on to Robert Owen's contribution, what I want to do first is sketch out his life, because I think actually his life, helps us illustrate why he believes the things he believes, and importantly, why he has a big disagreement with the emerging Marxist movement later in his life. Okay, Douglas, where was he born? Who were his parents? So, he was born on the 14th of May in 1771 in Montgomeryshire in Wales. But he moves out of Wales very, very quickly. So, at the age of 10, he moves to London eh, to start as an apprentice draper. And at the age of 18, he starts his first business. So the one thing we have to understand about Robert Owen is one of his great skills is he has a marvellous business acumen. And his business, which is producing machines to spin cotton, is relatively successful, and it secures him a job as a superintendent in Manchester, as a superintendent of factories there. And two things happen to him there that kind of go on to transform his life. The first thing is he meets his wife, and Caroline Dale, and the second thing is he encounters, really for the first time in a serious way, the horrifying conditions of the emerging proletariat.
1: So he goes from a factory owner to a supervisor?
0: No, so he's not a factory owner. His business is a partner in producing machines that spin cotton. But it's quite a small business, so he basically uses it as a way to get into the door to get a job as the superintendent. In Uh fact, throughout his life, Robert Owen will never own a factory. In fact, the reason that he is connected to New Lanark is because of his marriage to his wife. So, although he is never the absolute poor, he marries good. Because Anne Caroline Dale's father is a man called David Dale who's a successful Scottish factory owner and a distant relative Mm -hmm. of Scottish aristocracy. And in 1800, David
1: Dale gives his son-in-law a job at New Lanark. Ah, good old fashioned nepotism. Yeah, yeah, good old fashioned nepotism. Which I believe at the time was just considered the correct way to do things. Well sure. And actually it works out for Robert Owen
0: because he's went from Manchester, this city where he's been really horrified by the working conditions that he's seeing in these factories, to New Lanark where his father in law gives him a much freer hand than he had before.
1: So he goes from feeling that he can't really do anything about what he sees to a a position where he has the power to say, actually, we're going to do things differently.
0: Yeah, because, again, importantly, he's never an owner. He's the superintendent. But being the second-in-command to your father-in-law gives you a lot more power than being the second-in-command to just some random owner. Um, It makes you more difficult to fire, let's just say. (laughs) Uh, And so when he arrives there, he actually implements a lot of the reforms that you mentioned at the start of this episode. So he raises the age that you need to be to start work in the factory. He reduces the working day and he makes the conditions generally better and safer. He establishes a discount store for employees. He establishes a free school Um, he just generally improves the community feeling in the village of New Lanark um, and just generally makes the place a, a much nicer place to work for his workers. And actually also, and importantly, increases productivity because it turns out if you actually enjoy where you're working and aren't being treated like a machine you actually get a lot more done
1: it's it's interesting because um in some ways right now you're getting a lot of headlines kind of declaring the same moral in in kind of very different circumstances i think recently there was an article about how the four-day week increases productivity um even if people work the same number of hours because they have more time to spend with their family, wash their clothes, (laughs) um, do things they're interested in. Now, obviously, no one, well, most people nowadays don't have the uh, working conditions of a Victorian factory, Um, but we're still, still learning over and over again that people who are happy and comfortable do better work.
0: As in their own time back then, there were lots of people who were kind of shocked by this. So New Lanark becomes a destination. So factory owners and supervisors from all over Europe will make this pilgrimage to New Lanark and be given guided tours and be shown how improving the conditions can actually uh, can actually improve productivity. Now it's an open question how influential this was, but this is where his uh, where his. And um, reputation today is kind of the, the ethical capitalist and the ethical philanthropist kind of comes in, because this is actually very, very important. Proving that his ideas can work in practice and increase productivity really opens a lot of doors for Robert Owen when it comes to um, the halls of power. So he gets audiences with politicians and with, uh, w- with leading businessmen, and he can really kind of push his reforms. And at this point, he also starts hanging out with philosophers like Jeremy Bentham or William Godwin. And these men encourage him to write down his ideas. And this is exactly what he does. And this is really the start of his career as a philosopher and a social theorist. And from this time on, he really starts taking a back seat in the management of Lanark and starts really, really focusing in on philanthropy and pushing these theories.
1: And how does his father-in-law feel about paying a supervisor that's mostly writing books?
0: Well, so by this point, actually, his reforms are quite controversial with the board. So although he is is increasing productivity, the shareholders are actually quite... um, It's quite contentious among the shareholders that he's spending so much of the excess profit on things like building schools, building discount stores, increasing wages and all these kind of things. And so by 1814, 1815, it does seem that the people involved in the running of New Lark are actually kind of happy to see him kind of go on to different things.
1: Okay. And so what what does he write? What ends up in is his theory? Well, basically... Robert Owen is
0: a philosopher of education. The way he opens his first book is this line where he says, the best governed state will be that which shall possess the best national system of education. And he's writing this at the time where there are debates in the United Kingdom about whether universal education should be a thing. So although there have been some trials in some counties in Scotland, we have to remember, early part of the 19th century, universal education is not a thing. It's still on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And he's coming in here trying to say, well, this is something I really, really want to push for. He wants universal education, but he doesn't want just any old universal education. He has a very particular theory of education. So his theory of education is one we would broadly consider now behavioralist. He believes that a child is a blank slate, more or less, and that if you teach them correctly, and put them in a good environment, you will produce a good person. So, for instance, he has this quote from his first book, where he says, children are, without exception, passive and wonderfully contrived compounds, which, by due preparation and accurate attention, founded on a correct knowledge of the subject, may be formed collectively into any human character.
1: I I think probably it's worth um, pausing at this moment and reflecting on how that doesn't sound like an accurate description of any Four year old I've ever met. But but also, right, the, there's something to keep in mind, which is that um, one of the views that has changed massively over this period of time from when he was writing to now is views of how you should treat children. And in particular, the idea that uh, a child should be indulged, played with, enjoyed as as, you know, someone who's supposed to have a childhood is a is a new idea. It's not one that's a prominent idea right there.
0: And it's interesting because Robert Owen is one of the first to put forward this idea. So when you actually look at his school in New Lanark, it is remarkable the extent to how progressive it is. So one of the things he really encourages is, for instance, during the summer, he encourages lessons to take, out, take place outdoors. During the winter, he encourages what we would probably term a multimedia classroom so he wants there to be maps and charts and books that the children can look at and he encourages the teachers to try and really encourage the children to develop their own personalities to play with the children to give the children rest time and um, and you're you're right his idea like from that quote i just read he really believes they're a blank slate and that's why he thinks it's so important because you can mold them in any way you want mm. Now, that is a very, we would now consider a very extreme position. But as I said, he and the other utopian socialists are very heavily influenced by this idea of rationality coming out of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution.
1: Right. And blank slate, I mean, you, you just, uh, John Locke, right? Exactly. Um, the mind is a tabula rasa on which experience, writes. Yeah, no, it was so, and certainly a view at the time. And I think at the people's views are more sophisticated than the like philosophy 101 rundown of them but i don't think anyone at the time had any idea that the brain was going to be the particular complex organ that it is
0: exactly although i think we do need to give robert owen credit because a lot of his theories about how you should teach children are kind of like controversial now. You wouldn't find them in a public school now, or at least not most of them. You're kind of thought, like, when I read them, they very much sound like the philosopher of the Steiner schools in places like this. Um, and so he is really, really pushing pushing the envelope here. And of course, his ideas are not broadly embraced by the emerging, by the emerging universal education, right? So one of the things he's very against is right. rote learning. He hates the idea of rote learning. But of course... British public schools will use rote learning for 150 years um, after after his death, but he is pushing forward for this idea that children should be educated.
1: why uh, yeah, I mean, rote, I mean, rote learning is—it's hard to understand uh, why it was so appealing, except for that there was this very different view of children. Um, But it stayed. And my grandma has this story. She was a Latin teacher and they used to place a child by the door when they thought they were going to be inspected. And if the inspector showed up, the child would go running and knock on the language teacher's doors and the language teachers would suddenly swap from rote learning to what they were supposed to be teaching the kids, which was, you know, more like how we're taught languages nowadays. Mm. Um, because there was this massive resistance, even then, um, to the idea of that kids shouldn't just memorise and reproduce material. Yeah,
0: and, it, and um, as he's, because he's publishing these books to push for new laws, and he gets really frustrated with this, because he does feel that although he's making some progress, um, people aren't really listening to him. They don't seem to want to follow through completely on his ideas. But I think also it's important to say that, Robert Owen's idea of education and the role he thinks it plays in society is much, much, much more all-encompassing than most theories of education. So he genuinely thinks education will be the route where it will transform society into a utopia. So he has this idea where he believes that ignorance is the root of all evil, that the reason bad things are happening among the poor is because they're not being educated properly. But he also believes that bad conditions are happening in factories because the factory owners and the factory superintendents aren't being educated properly. And so he really, really believes if you can educate the child, I I think, I don't know the best way I could put it other than he believes in like socialism by contagion. Like you'll educate a child (laughs) and they'll have the correct ideas and they will go out in the world and they'll spread the ideas and they'll educate more children. Because although he doesn't think adult education is useless, he definitely thinks getting a child early is is the best way to educate them. Which again is is in line with modern theories of education, right? He's very ahead of the curve in this in this degree. But he he thinks, look, we need to educate the children, teach them the right thing to do, and then that means they can they can go on and shape society in a way that will lead us to them conducting what is meant to be done for the maximum good of society
1: yeah i I guess people knowing that um young if you teach people young that that's kind of the most influential period is very old though right there's a a quote from either classical greece or rome about give me a a boy under seven and i'll give you a man
0: yes but uniquely among him he thinks the working class should be educated (laughs) so he believes in universal education everyone in he believes very strongly everyone, including women, are equal and that you should educate everybody and that this is the way that we will get to, to a good society because he is living in what Eric Hobbes' bombs term would be the age of revolution. There's the French Revolution, there's the American mm-hmm. Revolution. On the horizon are things like the revolutions of 1848. And he is telling people very explicitly, we need to do this to prevent revolution because the poor are becoming agitated, they're becoming angry at these conditions, they don't know how to fix it themselves, and we need to educate them. So how he justifies these this theory of why people should educate the poor in his first book is, I've got a quote here, where he says, a very little reflection on the part of the privileged will ensure this line of conduct, that is the achievement of his theory, without domestic revolution, without war or bloodshed, Without disturbing anything which exists, the world would be prepared to receive principles which alone are calculated to build up a system of happiness.
1: So it, it sounds like, I mean, this, this sounds almost like the, the wrong reason to be interested in these things. Is this because he's selling his book to factory owners that he thinks wouldn't be motivated simply for the good of everyone involved? listen to me or they'll burn down your factories.
0: So no, because he genuinely... So in the same text he talks about how he cannot imagine any factory owner disagreeing with him um, once they've read the book. So he doesn't... He,
1: uh-huh. He's
0: not doing it particularly because he, do, he... So he is definitely writing it for factory owners and people of the same class as him um, because they are the decision makers. But the reason he's talking about this in this way is he is genuinely concerned about revolution. Now, I don't want to subscribe pacifism to him, but he is definitely very very allergic to the idea of conflict. So back in Manchester, although he is horrified by the conditions of the poor, he's also horrified by what is the sometime, um, sometime violent use of the nascent trade union movement in trying to disrupt the factories. So the things like the Luddites mm-hmm. coming in and smashing machines, he's horrified by that violence as well. And he has a very much an attitude of bad guys on both sides. And so one of the things he wants to do is he's trying to prevent revolution, like we've seen in France very recently to him, and kind of achieve his goals as a way of of avoiding revolutionary carnage, but still reaching this utopia as he sees it.
1: Well, uh, despite Thatcher's best attempts, the UK never revolted. <laughs> so, good on Robert Owen. great success. Is this the? Well, th- this is the thing. He's
0: he's almost entirely uh, ignored. Um, so, uh, Ralph yeah. Miliband, the the father of the of the old Labour leader, has this line where mm-hmm. he says that it's quite remarkable that Robert Owen never gave up his capacity to believe that the British government was going to accept his ideas. Basically, words to those, of those effects. And it is. He he keeps going on mm-hmm. ex- thinking, well, the British government is good, and eventually they're going to see, see sense.
1: Okay, so you've talked a lot about this kind of utopian society. What does that look like for Robert Ireland? So
0: there is basically some disagreement within the scholarship about exactly what he's looking for. So some people say that his utopia is indistinguishable from the one that Marx and Engels saw, this kind of idea of a classless society, mm-hmm. and that where the difference was is obviously Marx believes in revolution and Robert Owen thinks it's bad. But then there is another part of the scholarship that places Robert Owen in the history of this paternalistic Tory idea of an organic society coming forward out of the communities like clubs, association, guilds, and family networks to create this community of the nation something he would call um a commonwealth of cooperation so a much more almost burkean kind of idea that he's putting a socialist spin on i tend to come down on the side of the second one here i think he's very very paternalistic and and to try and like make my point i actually have two passages i would like you to read well so this is from a later pamphlet of him arguing for the fact that children below the age of 10 should no longer work in factories And he comes to a part where he's trying to talk about, well, opposition to it, why he thinks people, once they learn his position, will no longer oppose it. Now, the first bit is him talking about the opposition of the parents who are sending their children to work in order to get a wage. And that's the bit I want you to read first.
1: So uh, the listeners may have noticed that I'm recovering from a cold. So wish me luck on reading this without...
0: It's, uh, it's to add that, um, that period charm, of, like consumption.
1: You've been working in yeah, the thought. Yeah, <laughs> sound like a bin down a mine. Um, parents who have grown up in ignorance and bad habits and who consequently are in poverty may say, we cannot afford to maintain our children until they shall be 12 years of age without putting them into employment by which they may earn a wage and therefore object that this part of the plan which precludes us from sending them to manufactories until they shall be of that age. If the poorest and most miserable of people formerly supported their children without regular employment until they were 14, why may they not now support them until they shall be 12 years old? If parents who decline this duty had not been ignorant and trained in bad habits, which rendered their mental facilities inferior to the instances of many animals, they would understand that by forcing their children to labor in such situations at a premature age, they place their offspring in circumstances calculated to retard their growth. Ooh.
0: Yes, what's your reflection on this way of talking about these Working class people
1: in his factories oh, There's um, No person Who has respect for someone else Compares them to animals
0: Yeah and this So I've taken this this chunk out But this is quite um, typical of his writing When Robert Owen comes to talk about The working class in his factories He always uses similar terms mm. he, he talks about them As if they are Animals that need to be shown In the correct light and in his later life, this will actually, for some reason, I can't quite think why, rub a lot of early trade unionists up the wrong way <laughs> and leads to a, a political problem later on in his life. So here, I think he's being very patronising. And I think actually what highlights this is I have a second reading where later on in the passage, he comes to talk about factory owners who are of the same class as him. And I thought it might be worth to kind of reflect on this to allow you to read this passage as
1: well. Okay. I do not anticipate any objections from employers to the age named for the admittance of children into their manufactories, or for children, or to children being previously trained in good habits and the rudiments of common learning. For, upon the experience abundantly sufficient to ascertain the fact, I have uniformly found it to be more profitable to admit children to constant daily employment at ten years of age than any earlier period and that those children or adults who have been best taught make the best servants, and were by far the most easily directed to everything that was right and proper for them to perform. The proprietors of expensive establishments may object to the reduction in the now customary hours of labour. The utmost extent, however, of their arguments is that the rent or interest of capital expended in formerly the establishment is changeable on the quantity of its product. So how do you think those two compare? Um, so he's he's planning to do things to the poor, and he's going to persuade the rich to do things.
0: Yes, exactly. He wants to persuade the rich to do things, one, because he really believes in the, his persuasive power. He believes the rational people who he has the best ideas and he will convince it. But two, as I said, he's allergic to this idea of of revolution or really any kind of class conflict. And this is why I come down on the side of the people who see him as part of this heritage of paternalistic Tory idea of an organic society. His utopia is not one where there are no classes. It's one where all the classes work together, in which there is the paternalistic factory owner taking care of the the working class who are living in better conditions and moving forward together to build a better empire, a better nation.
1: In that way, he might actually be less radical than um, some kind of proponents of uh, universal education that came before him. So, for example, uh, Descartes has his work published in French because he thinks that people not trained... In philosophical pursuits are still capable of philosophical reflection, including women. But he he's he seriously means to a certain extent as peers. Mm. Um, meanwhile, it seems that here with Robert Owen, when he's saying that well, children can be educated, it feels a bit like um, what's it called, nineteen
0: eighty four? Yeah. Well, and I think this is important because his. His goal, much like the utilitarians, and I wonder if this is Bentham's influence, his goal is the maximisation of happiness. And he believes that the way to maximise the working class's happiness is if all of the factory owners and all of the landed class are nice people, basically. They're well-educated. And in fact, this leads to him in the 1820s coming out against abolition of slavery because he believes that the most important thing is not the abolition of slavery, but the fact that we reform
1: it so that all the masters are nice to the slaves. That's uh, pretty shocking. So I was actually going to uh, think about another uh, contrast, which is Mill. So Mill, obviously, the most famous of the utilitarians, and and one of the one of the facts about Mill is that he. Uh, believed in racial equality to the extent that he believed all people were capable of being uh, proper Englishmen with proper training. But we wouldn't say that he had a kind of view of cultural equality at all. Um, He pretty clearly didn't. But it seems like Robert Owen is almost, you know, and I take Mill as kind of the prime example of this kind of paternalist attitude where he's like, look, some people have horrible views about other people, but we just need to teach them to be proper Englishmen, and then everything will be fine. And you're like, um, <laughs> but but his Robert Owen's view seems almost worse. It seems like he's denying that you would you could train everyone to be proper Englishmen, rather you could train them to be in their proper place.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and that seems to be exactly his idea. He says in other bits that. The working class just simply do not have the capacity to rise up to become become the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Where he is radic- more radical or more progressive than other members of his peers is he believes the working class are not responsible for their poor conditions. He thinks their conditions can mm-hmm. be better. And a lot of the, the crime, for instance, within these communities is created by poverty and by bad environment. However, at no point does he really have this idea that if you change the environment, they could become equals with people like Robert Owen or his father-in-law.
1: Right. So it's still, I mean, so there's there's, uh, an old British idea, right, of the Commonwealth, where the king is the head, the priests are the hands, I forget exactly how it is, uh, and the farmers kind of make up the body and the legs. And, and everyone is in their proper place. Well it's
0: interesting you should say that because the name of his theory that he gives it is the cooperative commonwealth. So it does sound like he, this is why I think, I, I fall on the line that well actually we should, although he calls himself a utopian socialist, I tend to think of Robert Owen as coming out of this school of classical Tory paternalism that you're mentioning there this idea of a commonwealth with the king at the head and then in his mm-hmm. term it's the capital owning class rather than the aristocracy and then below that right up and so on and he doesn't have a role for priests because being influenced by the scientific revolution he is an atheist but here is the interesting thing about robert owen and why i think he's actually much more influential on the british left than other members of utopian socialism because unlike many philosophers he actually has the means to try out his ideas. So I thought we might want to move on to Robert Owen as Praxis, as doing his ideas.
1: <laughs> Alright, apart from New Lanark,
0: what did he do? So in May 1825, he goes to America and he buys a place called New Harmony from a cult called the Rapids. So there's a big place, it's about 30,000 acres, there are already buildings and mills there, and he sinks about four-fifths of his fortune into it. And he calls this his preliminary society. So his idea has been, up until this point, he's been trying to campaign in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords to get his ideas passed. And this hasn't worked. He's been really disappointed by this so he goes back to the drawing board and he says okay what we will have is we will have communes and these communes will work so well that other people will look at them and they will be inspired by our example and they will realize that our ideas will come about in fruition and they're great and i've got a quote here i would like you to read about what he describes this commune as, at the beginning of it. And I want to again remind our listeners and you that he is not religious, he is an atheist. And this is his quote about how he talks about these communes.
1: Oh, oh, you want me to read it? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, This is the great advent of the world, the second coming of Christ, for truth and Christ are one and the same. The first coming of Christ was a partial development of truth to the few, the second coming of Christ will make truth known to the many. The time is therefore arrived where the foretold millennium is about to commence. Ah, uh, well, yeah. I mean, it sounds a bit culty. <laughs> yeah, just a tad. Well,
0: he has bought it from a cult. He's literally bought this area from a cult. yeah.
1: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and he invites lots of people, so he's quite successful. He goes to America. Um, He gets to speak in Congress in front of the president, he meets governors, he meets all sorts of worthies promoting his cause, Um, and um, again a little bit of 19th century nepotism, he puts his son in charge of this place called New Harmony, and he's a little too successful, so too many people apply for membership in the first couple Uh of weeks and they're a bit overwhelmed, Uh Uh, but Robert Owen sees this as a great idea, people are really, really loving his idea, they're all moving to New Harmony. And originally he plans to be in charge of it, like a kind of dictator and he'll dictate what happens. But he meets the people and he's like, wow, these guys are so great. So they set up basically a Soviet where like, they all meet together and they elect people to different committees based on what work they do. Um, so one of his big ideas is he wants to abolish the distinction between intellectual and manual work. Uh-huh. He wants to abolish ideas of the family. He wants, um, one of his big ideas is complete equality of all people. Um, and all mm-hmm. these people come. He has like 800 different families living there. And it starts in 1825. In 1828, he kind of like grows tired of it. He goes back to England. 1829, it's been completely mothballed and they sell off all the land. All the people have to move off. <laughs> um, and he just abandons it completely. But people will move on from here. So he's quite an influential guy. As you say, he's a bit culty. So other communities start up in Lanarkshire, and it lasts from 1825, but then is mothballed in 1827. Another one is Mm -hmm. started up in County Clare. It only lasts three years. Uh, There's another one in Queenwood in England. It lasts a bit longer, 1839 to 45. But ultimately, this period of building up communes is kind of a bit of a damp squib. So we start off with a quote you read about this being a great advent, the second coming of Christ, and none of them really last more than five years. So if it was the second coming of Christ, it was a very short second coming.
1: Can, can I just uh, ask, so you're talking about the communities and you said at one point he thought he was going to be a dictator. You're like, okay, that sounds like a common one, right? Yeah. Owen just thinks that he should be the head. But then when it gets committees and stuff like that, I can kind of see how... Some people might think he's closer to Marx than the quotes we read suggested.
0: But again, importantly, it's him who decides to mothball it.
1: Uh So this is the thing, because
0: although there are committees, throughout all this time, he owns everything. So it's not held in common. The committees decide how to run it. But at the end of the day, he is the one who makes the decision to mothball it. And the vast majority of the funds for this come from his personal fortune. Mm-hmm. So even although he's giving some control over to these committees, at the end of the day, he is still in charge of this
1: 30,000 acres. And when he says, OK, it's over, these people have to leave. I see. And and so he does sell. Why? Why, why does it fail? Why do all the, the others seem to only last a few years as well?
0: Two problems. The first is probably you've already kind of hinted, they're over-relying in one rich donor. New Harmony, he is the most successful, but other rich businessmen he's convinced of his ideas are very involved in the other ones. So, for instance, the one in Ireland in County Clare, it has to fold in 1833 because the rich donor they were relying on um, gambles all his money away <laughs> and so they have no money and so they have to leave. And similarly, the other ones are very, um, very vulnerable to the idea of either the owner decides they're no longer a good financial investment, or he goes bored, or something like this, and so they get mothballed by the owner. The second reason they fail is, although he is culty, his ideas for who should be able to join the commune are very, very vague. And so, although he is committed to this idea of equality, he never really defines what that means. And so there is a big disagreement in New Harmony about exactly what equality means, and there's a lot of tension. So um I think this is this is something that all leftist groups are guilty of, right? It's factionalism. And New Harmony has a big problem with this. So he sets up these mm-hmm. committees and you have like representative democracy. And a group in New Harmony thinks that representative democracy means it's no longer equal because the representatives have more decision-making power than everyone else. So they leave mm-hmm. and start their own colony in the same plot so they like cut out it and take some of the resources and go to a different area (laughs) (laughs) and they start up their rival commune in the same place and there's tension between the atheist and the religious members and between the different religious denominations within it and all these kind of tensions rub up together and lead to a lot of like infighting and argument that means it never quite becomes as cohesive as owen
1: wanted what's the old joke put five socialists in a room and you'll get six socialist parties.
0: Yeah. And a very similar thing happens
1: with these communes,
0: except it's like you get six socialist parties and also there's one rich guy is funding all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so they fail, right? They're, I mean, obviously they go on to be other commune movements, but presumably coming then out of things like Marxism more than um, Owen's socialist utopia or as,
0: Yes. Um, I mean, he continues to have a bit of an influence. So um, he is influential on some early anarchist thinkers. And so some of the anarchist communes that come out of, say, for instance, the Spanish Civil War are, are like taking some of his ideas and going with them. But you're right, like there aren't Owenite podcasts, right? Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but he comes back to England and his next one is maybe a little bit more influential. So He comes back and he's kind of disappointed by the failure of his communes, they've not really worked. By the 1830s he's kind of went off the idea of communes, he's went okay that wasn't a good idea either, and he decides to settle in on the nascent trade union movement. And in 1833 he founds the Grand National Consolidated Trades Union, which is meant to bring all trade unions together under one umbrella organisation. And that's his next... Day. And he's quite successful. He gets most of the nascent trade unions to kind of join him um,
1: in, in this big Congress. And what does he do once he's got them all in Congress?
0: Well, so that that's the problem, because he gets them all under the same banner. And as we've already spotted, I don't know if you've spot a problem here, that Robert Owen quite likes his factory-owning friends. And mm-hmm. so when the trade unionists all get together and say, okay, how should we improve our, ed- uh, our conditions? Robert Owen basically goes, well, we should ask the government politely to-, mm. to change the situations. And I don't know if you've ever had any experience with the British government, well, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but the British government of the 19th century wasn't known for their progressive views on trade unionism. Right. And the next year, in 1834, they actually increased their hostility toward these unions. So there's things like lockouts, they imprisoned some of the leaders, and the trade unions and the Chartist movement kind of react and start reacting with wildcat strikes and protests and uh, smashing machines and things like that. And Owen, as the head of this big trade union organisation, comes out in defence of, well, you guessed it, the factory owners in the States. Ah, okay. Sits the trade unionist down and he says, To govern an empire like this, if it should be done once thrown into confusion, is a task of which none among the working class, and few among any class, can form an adequate conception.
1: So I guess that doesn't go down well.
0: (laughs) No, you guessed correctly. So the trade unionist, after he says this, accuse him of being in the pay of the state Uh now that is not true but it may as well be Uh people ask him about the radicalism of the chartist movement and he says they're too ignorant and inexperienced to get any remedy to the existing evils he kind of tells them look this trade union movement it's not going to work if we're going to like be in confrontation with the state and the factory owners we have to come together hand in hand and work with them but the problem he has is like the factory owners just simply aren't interested in working hand in hand with the yeah. trade unions. And when that becomes clear, he doesn't actually have any solution to what to do. And so very quickly, his grand union collapses just as the communes do. And what, what point in time are we at now? So this is the 1834. His trade union movement kind of collapses around his ears, so only one year after he's founded it.
1: So he's a man in his his mid-50s at this point.
0: Yes, yeah, he's a man in his mid-50s, but this is kind of the period where he kind of peters out as someone of political significance. Like, he's kind of in the generation before Marx and Engels, and... We're getting into the period where Marx and Engels are starting. So the Communist Manifesto was written in, what, 1848? Uh We're starting to get this period where the utopian socialists, specifically Robert Owen, but also others, are kind of being discredited because the tension between the working class and the the factory owners is getting higher and higher, and they do not seem to have a solution. All they can do is say, well, let's just sit down and work hand in hand. Mm -hmm. But... As far as I can tell, neither side are particularly interested <laughs> in working hand in hand. And this is kind of the end of his political career. So a little bit later he'll try and start up a cooperative movement in the Labour Exchange to try and prove that we can work hand in hand. And this is so disastrous. That the cooperative movement in the future becomes only a retail movement. So the reason that we have in the UK cooperative supermarkets and not like cooperative factories is because Robert Owen's involvement in the early cooperative movement is kind of disastrous.
1: Oh, wow. And loses a much more money. And uh, and and when does when does Robert Owen pass away? So he he dies in
0: 1858, still convinced that um, it's just a matter of time before. Uh, the ruling class of the United Kingdom come to their senses and realize that his ideas are actually what's going to lead toward utopia. Um, But his movement, how should I put this, his movement kind of gets petered out and overtaken by Marxism as a force on the left, but it kind of does survive on things like uh, the left wing of the Liberal Party, in the kind of mainstream of things like the cooperative movement or things like the Fabian society mm-hmm. and carry on to have influences on the British left up until the present day. I, and I would say like my, my feeling is actually in many ways, I think Robert Owen is probably more influential on in how the British left turn out than either Marx or Engels is. Mm-hmm. As you said, Britain never has a revolution. There is yeah. no revolution that takes place. Right, And the, like, even to the point where the early Labour Party in the early 20th century is the only socialist party that is pro-monarchy, for instance, right? Like, so his ideas of this kind of gradual change, working with the ruling class toward change, are very, very influential, even if his name is largely forgotten. So so I've, I've done my conclusion well. You started with your impressions of what you had of robert owen what do you think about him now that we've kind of discussed his ideas and his practice in a bit more
1: depth so it's interesting because um in some ways right so people are often complex figures right so he's clearly someone who was willing to forego certain goods he could have had in his life to do what he thought was a, a a moral requirement um and presumably there are people who were directly helped by him doing this. But at the same time, he seems to interestingly um, both think too much of people and too little. And in, in some ways, that's kind of a, a a weird, well, I mean, we can see exactly where the blind spot is. It's about people he probably thinks of as like him versus people he thinks of as not like him. And he has too much faith. Maybe in everyone, but especially in those he thinks of as like him, and maybe too little faith in those that he he kind of sees as um other.
0: Yeah, I think how I see it is Robert Owen throughout his life, as you say, did he was doing more than the vast majority of nineteenth century. British factory superintendents, right? That is undoubtable. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, Robert Owen's great problem is he could never stop seeing himself as the subject of the sentence. So throughout all of his life and all his political movements, he had to be in charge and his thoughts were the ones that mattered. And so when he came to trying helping the working class, he could never help the working class from their perspective or listen to their input. It had to be him helping the working class. These are my ideas I'm giving you, and so I think in that way his big problem is he could never really quite escape his class, right? He could never quite get out of this idea of I am a man, mem- I am the factory superintendent, I'm telling you what to do, I know what's in your best interest, and largely I think that's why a lot of his his ventures, especially in the latter part with the trade union movement. Kind of failed mm-hmm. was because when he came up against people, especially in the working class, who wanted to put input, he was completely resistant to it. So I I, su- I suppose I suppose the lesson of the day is that it wasn't great to be a working class factory worker in nineteenth oh, century nineteenth <laughs> century England, even if
1: your factory owner was. Well I just owned. just like to highlight some of the ages that turned up in the quotes we were reading. He. Uh, suggested the benefit of not employing children under 10, said that parents should accept that they shouldn't work, send their children to work under 12, and then mentioned <laughs> that in past, people had the good sense of waiting till kids were 14. I don't know if you've met many 10-, 12-, or 14-year-olds recently. <laughs> but,
0: are, you, are, you saying, are you saying the little hands aren't good at picking out cotton from the cotton spinning machines? well?
1: oh yeah i i guess uh, if any of our readers maybe don't come from a context where they're familiar with the victorian factory condition lucky you yeah 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 yes i mean these are these are in in a sense children were treated as completely disposable they were treated as uh machines that happened to be made of flesh that inevitably would break down and weren't expected to become adults. And I guess anyone who resisted that attitude, um, I mean, it, we, you know, it was a worthy change for the better.
0: Yeah. So I think if we wanted to end on a nice note, what we would say is Robert Owen, for all of his faults, saw children as something that was worthy of investing in, regardless of their background, and that I think is a worthy, a worthy goal.
1: So that's all we have time for today. Uh, I've been Will Stafford. And I've been Doug Rooney. And thank you very much for listening. As always, you can uh, tweet at us at dead underscore speaking. And please remember to
0: follow us and like us and share us wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Now, I think, Will, later on this month, we are planning to have a Christmas special. Is that correct? I believe so. Well, good. So if you're into um, something that's a bit more Christmassy than Victorian factory conditions, uh, please follow us and check your podcast feed for that. I
1: mean, I I don't know about you, Douglas, but uh, if you've read your Dickens, you would know that there is nothing more Christmassy than Victorian factory conditions. That's
0: true. Okay, so I suppose I cannot keep the promise that there will be no talk of Victorian
1: factory conditions in our Christmas episode. All right.